recording. Um, so he, I'm, I'm proud to say, was uh, one of my predecessors. And there are some very interesting uh, people who were um, head rabbis, haham. Not everybody had the title haham. I don't have the title haham. But um, essentially, the job is the same, in which there is the, you know, the, the haham or the rab that they established, that the kahal establishes as the head of the community, which means that that's the authority over the uh, Bedin and the, the synagogues and, and essentially all of the religious affairs of the Kehillah. That included often um, after Sir Moses Montefiore established the yeshiva um, at Ramsgate, being Rosh Yeshiva of the yeshiva or, or heading the yeshiva. And, and Hacham Gagin also, his work included um, heading the yeshiva, the Montefiore uh, yeshiva at Ramsgate. He was the uh, the rav of the kehila. Well, he became rav. He became uh, the head of the kahal in 1920. But he was he was uh, the rav during the during the war, and so he had to evacuate London. He spent time before that in Manchester. He had spent time during the war in Manchester because of the Blitz. And, um, but before that, he was in Cairo. His family had gone from Spain originally into to, uh, to Eres Israel, and he was, in, as, was a Dayan in Cairo. So he had a very good sense of the Eastern side of things. And then he came to, and he came to the UK. And he, he was essentially the, the ecclesiastical chief, that's what they called him, of, uh, of, the, of the s &P. Uh, at the time, it was the only Sfaradim here in the UK. So, um, but because he was not proper, properly stationed in London, he had a huge amount of time to study and to write. And he did. And he ended up, one of the things that he wrote and probably what he's most famous for is the Keter Shem Tov. Um, his name was Shem Tov. And so he called it the Keter Shem Tov, the crown of Shem Tov. Of course, that's a play on the, the keter of a Shem Tov is the greatest keter that a person can have, is the Hachamim say in Perkei Abot. Um, so this is my, my uh, edition of the Keter Shem Tov, which is an interesting edition because this was put out by, um, uh, it was put out by, I don't know who printed this, honestly, just to tell you the truth. But it was printed by some people in in uh, in Eretz Israel, and there's this little. I'm going to put up the stuff that we're going to read and share screen. But this I didn't put on share screen. So there's see this little box here. I'm going to read you what's written in this little box that is only in this edition. In the synagogue, in our in our archives, we have many volumes, many many copies of the Keter Shem Tov, because it was published under the authority of the Kahal. Uh, of the Keilah. So I'm going to read you also a little bit about that. But in this new edition, they've printed it and they included this little uh, disclaimer over here in the box. I'm going to read you what the disclaimer says. The dis it's, a, it's appalling what it says, but this is what it says. It says, Moda'a. Moda'a means notice. Leheveyodea. We want it to be known to everyone who reads and studies in this book, Shaharab Haber, that the Rav, the author, Zal, at least they say Zikornova Livracha, Palat Kolmoso Kama Vechama Dvarim Tibuhim. His pen spit out many, many strange things in this book. Yeah. Uh, the only value of the sefer, they say, hurak. The only value of the sefer is rabim. Is that it's testimony to many minhagim that were practiced, and so it upholds the source of these minhagim. That were practiced in many keilot that we have no memory of them any other place. So we have to bite the bullet, basically. They say and publish this strange work just so that we can have the memory of the menagim that he writes. But that's the only toilet, right? That's the only value of the book. They want to make sure that everybody knows that. It's the only source we have for these menagim. 
Therefore, we published it again. So, I mean, to publish a book by somebody and to so disrespect them uh, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the opening of the book is, is really, it's appalling, really. It's shocking. And it's a disclaimer because they don't want to get in trouble for publishing things that you will see. Hacham uh, Gagin wrote, and you're only going to see a mild version of it this week. Next week, we'll get into a little bit more, you know, where he's a little bit harsher. But he was, he was harsh. One of the things about Hacham Shem Tov was that he just said what he thought. He wrote what he thought. And if he thought something was stupid, he said it was stupid. Uh, or if he thought something was absurd, he would just say it's absurd. And he wrote that way very, very freely and openly. And sometimes he aimed it at the Kahal itself, right? Sometimes he wrote that the Midhagim that the, the community was doing were absurd to him. He didn't understand them. And there were certain things that he wrote about others that he thought were absurd and protected and, and, and uh, defended the S&P by the things that they were doing. Um, I have gone through... Uh, the majority of this Keter Shem Tov in, on recording. Before I came, before I took the position as a senior rabbi of the Kahal, I studied the Keter Shem Tov from cover to cover. I went through the entire thing. And I did that to prepare for uh, coming into the Kahal so that I would have a, an understanding and a knowledge of their minhagim. And it's really remarkable because there is no other Kahal in the world like the Spanish and Portuguese of London and Amsterdam that have almost their entire repertoire of minhag recorded with sources as to you know, what the source of the, of the minhagim is. And I will tell you, in my experience here, I'm now here six years, um, started seven years ago coming into the community, that you literally can read the Keter Shem Tov and see it's practiced in the, in the Kahal. There's maybe some minor things that are not practiced anymore. And even those things, of the things that are not practiced anymore, the majority of those are practiced at Bevis Marks, right? But they may not be practiced at Wembley or Lauderdale Road, but nonetheless practice at Bevis Marks. And those are very minor things like which direction we turn the sefer when we lift it up to show to the kahal and these kinds of things, which he records, right? He records everything, all that, all that is done. So one of the examples, which I, I uh, there was a point when we were actually able to go to synagogue and, you know, everybody was there and, and we had, you know, old days. Um, he writes that, for example, the minhag of the kahal is to say Adon Olam. Many of the Eastern Sephardim don't say Adon Olam, but the minhag of the kahal is to say Adon Olam to mark the end of the tefillah. And the, the, the choir sings the Adon Olam and he writes, the minhag of the kahal is that everybody remains seated with their talit on until the end of Adon Olam. And, uh, and I, I insisted that at Lauderdale Road, that's the way that we should do. So when I say insisted, I didn't go around like a police officer and make sure everybody, I, I, I announced it and then I announced it again and I modeled it and, uh, and people respected it. So Hacham Shem Tov had time and he wrote but he wrote very frankly, very, very uh, pointedly and did what it is that he, you know, he, what he thought was right. He was not afraid of, of anyone, um, but he was nonetheless respectful. So, so it opens saying that he, this is uh, authored by uh, Rabbi Shemtob Gagin, ecclesiastical chief of the Spanish and Portuguese Jews Congregation of England and principal of the Judith Montefiore Theological College in Ramsgate. So that's the title that was given him. What I want to do first, though, is I want to read you this opening letter, because the way that the Kahal is set up is that it has its own printing arm, right? Its own publishing arm. And that publishing arm is called the Etz Hayim. Uh, and they, they transliterated it in English, H-E-S-A-I-M, uh, because that was the, the way that they pronounced it. So now we call it the Heshaim, but that's a mystery mispronunciation. Heshaim is Etz Hayim. That's really what it is. And so in Hebrew, it's Etz Hayim, but it's always been, I mean, it's been around for, for a long time. So the secretary of the Etz Hayim at the time that the book was published was a man named Paul Goodman, and his family are still members of the Kahal today. Uh, not all of them are living in London. Some are living in Poland, 
but they're all members, they're members of the Kaham. And this is the letter. This just gives you an idea of, it brings you into the time, right? Of what was going on, uh, the, the nature of language, the nature of behavior in, in London at the time. So no book was to be published in the Kahal without the approval of the Ma'amad, right? Which is essentially the board of the Kahal. And that goes back to the time of Hacham Nieto. Hacham David Nieto in the opening of Matedan, he writes, Birshut Kvod Ansheha Ma'amad. He said this was published with the permission of the members of the Ma'amad, which are the board and the, the, the leaders of the community. Uh, if you look, if you have a copy of, of, Ket, of the uh, Matedan, you'll see that that's there. So Hacham Gagin had asked permission to publish the Sefer. And what's published at the opening of the book is the permission granted to publish the Sefer, signed by the secretary of the Yetz Hayim, Paul Goodman. He says, Dear Rabbeinu Shem Tov Gagin, I beg to inform you, the English is great. It's the only, this is the one sad time I feel like I really need to have a British accent. But nonetheless, you'll, you'll imagine it in your head as I'm reading. I beg to inform you that at a meeting of the Committee of Management of Heshaim held today, the intimation of the publication by you of a book of Minhagim was received with great pleasure. The committee are conscious of the distinction conferred upon the congregation generally by the publication of so interesting and valuable a work by the Abed Dean of this Kahal. Kahal is, is, is spelled K-A-A-L, right? Kahal. And they feel that it would be the desire of the Yahidim and the elders that the of the congregation should be associated with the literary production you are about to present to the Jewish public. The committee desire me to add their warm congratulations on your having been able during the course of your ministrations in the congregation to give to the learned world the results of your ripe scholarship and to wish your literary labors every success. And in closing, I beg to remain dear Rav Shem Tov Gagin, yours sincerely, Paul Goodman, secretary. So that is the permission granted to publish uh, Keter Shem Tov and how lucky we are and blessed we are to have this. I mean, this, I mean, I get that people like this sefer and it's an amazing sefer, but the truth of the matter is when you go through the sefer, 90% of the minhagim that are recorded in the sefer are the minhagim of London and Amsterdam and the SP community of the Western Sfaradim. He adds in here and there stuff that the Syrians did, stuff that the Babylonians did. But normally what he does, is he says, the minhag of London and Amsterdam is X, and the Eastern communities do why? That's the whole book. He goes through almost everything. So uh, I was saying that I learned through it before I came here. And uh, before, the year before COVID, I would always give, I do give at the end of the tefillah in the morning, uh, halakha. And for the year before COVID, and normally what I give is harambam. I, I say, I, I read a halakha from harambam or two. Uh, so that year I replaced it with the Keter Shem Tov. So I have, a rec I have recordings of 80% of the book uh, that I will put out to the, uh, to the, to the I'm gonna send it to the Kahal, but I have them all on recording. And I go through all the halachot, uh, really not all the minhagim really. So what we're gonna start with are two basic things. The first one we're gonna look at is not anything major. It's not major. This is the first one we're gonna look at is, is literally the first page of the book. And we're gonna just to orient you know, how the book works, you know, and what he's like and what his language is. Um, then we're going to look at something a bit interesting. And then we're going to get into a little bit of a fiery, uh, a fiery example of how he deals with Minhag. And that's, that's all we're going to do for tonight. So I'm going to share screen with you. And we'll get started. Okay, so this is the opening of the Sefer. Keter Shem Tov, and he writes up here, Lefi Sidur Hayomi Hanahug Bekal Kadosh Shar Belanden. He says, the format of my book is based on the daily and occasional Sidur. That's what we call it. We call our regular Sidur the daily and occasional. It's one of the most difficult Sidurim on the planet to use because they didn't, uh, they didn't publish it. Anything that you could have found on another page that was already published, they just tell you, go to that page. So you literally sit there flipping back and forth, back and forth, back and forth in the book. It's not an easy thing to use. But in any case, that Sidur is hundreds of years old. 
I mean, it, it was first published very early on in the days of the Kahal. And so we have, we have versions of that Sidur that are 200 years old and more. And it's always fun to be able to see when it was published because you turn to the page of the blessing of the king or the blessing of the royal family. You just say, who is, the, who is king at the time? Yeah, and that's how you can, it's, very, it's easy to date. But in any case, uh, so he says here in parentheses, Totsa'at Gaster. So Haham Moshe Gaster was also Haham of the Kahal, but he was Kahal, uh, he was only Ashkenazi, and he was Kahal at the turn of the century. Uh, he was also presiding at the, at the time that the bicentenary of the building of Bevis Marks was celebrated. And so it was a major event, and he published an entire book on the congregation and the, and the, and the synagogue, which I have. Um, so Totsa'at Gaster is the Gaster edition of the Sidur. And periodically over the, over, the, over the years, over the decades, the Sidur would be republished. And there might be some amendments that were made, but the Hacham was always in charge of the publication. And so he says that I'm using as my template, going through the Sidur and talking about Minhagim based on the Sidur, the Gaster version. But there are earlier versions. There's the Desola version and there's the Levi version. And he mentions them over here uh, in terms of how it is that they, they instruct and publish and so on. So he opens up, he always opens up with a little uh, rhyme uh, in, each, in each section. And the rhyme that he has over here is for Modeani. He says, Tefilat Modeani Leoshem B'Shabbat Tehkemuni. So he says, he, he, whatever it is, he, he rhymes. He likes these little rhymes. And he opens up with Modeani and says, Modeani Lefanecha Nishmat Binosah Amsterdam Vegam Behotzaat Levi Vedesola. He goes, the, that little prayer that everybody knows, Modeani, isn't public. It's not there in the Amsterdam Sidur till this day when he writes this, right? Amsterdam doesn't have it in the Sidur. And it's in the Gaster edition, but not in the Desola and Levi edition of the London Sidur. They don't have it. Then he writes, uh, notice he says to, again, Sidur Our The name of our Kahal is Shara Shamayim officially. We don't use that name very often. We will say that, uh, you know, the synagogue is Bevis Marks or Lord of Del Road, but the official name, the proper name of, of our Kahal is Shara Shamayim, the gates of heaven. So um, it says, Be'eretz Yisrael, Surya Mitzrayim, V'chol Areto Garma, Omnimoto, in Israel and Syria and Egypt and all of the Eastern countries, they say Modani. Okay. So he brings down here, so this is his footnote, you know, on Aleph, you go Aleph down to Aleph. The footnote is, he says, This whole Modani prayer, you will not find it in any of the old Sidurim. It doesn't exist. It's a very new development in our liturgy. And he says, We have no idea who, who authored it either. Uh, he says, look, it's maybe Maybe it was authored by people who are What is Hen? Hen stands for or Nistar, which is Kabbalah. He says, must be some Kubalim wrote it. But he does say there is something similar to it in the Yerushalmi. Right? And in the Yerushalmi, in Berachot, it's written, It mentions Modeani, but it mentions it in another, with, with different words. And he brings it as follows. He says, This is what's written in the, in the Yerushalmi. It says, The first thing you say in the morning, according to Yerushalmi, is Modeani. I, I thank you, God, that you have taken me from darkness to light. That's the opening thing that we say. Beminha, then you're supposed to say one at Minha also, a Modeani. And the Modeani at Minha is Modeani Levanecha Adonaik, Shem Shizichitani Lerot Hahama Bimizrah, Kach Zachiti Lerot Bemarav Vairev. Rabbonosha Olam, just as you showed me the sunrise, you're showing me the sunset. The rise is in the east, setting in the west. Because Minha is supposed to be prayed at the end of the day, based on that pasuk, Then we say, Yeah, just the same way that you 
uh, that I was in darkness and you brought me to light, always bring me from darkness to light. He goes, says, oh, excuse me, I skipped a bit. He says over here in the in the evening also, you're supposed to say this little line, bring me from light to dark, from dark to light. Then he says, um, He says, you know, in our Modeani, we don't have God's name in the Modeani. And the reason for that is because a person's hands are not clean when he wakes up, might have touched areas of the body that were sweaty and so on. And you're supposed to wash your hands before you say God's name. So we give a line that a person can say immediately upon waking up and thanks to God for, for awakening without his name. So you don't run into the problem of saying God's name when your hands are, when your hands are dirty. But he says, um, but nonetheless, the Abed says not to say it. Uh, yeah, the Abed was the son of uh, the Hacham Tzvi. And he says, better not to say it if your hands are not clean. Even the Modeani that we have, right? The Modeani without a Kadosh Baruch Hu's name. And he says, Amsterdam. He says, because of that, Amsterdam never picked it up. They just left it as it was. So nobody, they don't say Modiani. Today, I don't know. I'm sure they must, but I don't, you know, in, the, in Amsterdam, Sidur, at least at the time of, of uh, Chacham Gagin writing this, they didn't have it. And Gaster put it into the Sidur. And there are actually a few things that Chacham Gaster instituted and put in that uh, we didn't have before, before him. One of the things which, uh, unfortunate, in my opinion, is that there is a minhag of the Kahal to stand at Baruch Hu. And they all stand up at Baruch Hu and wait for Baruch Hu to be said so that they can bow at Baruch Hu. And the halakha among the Sfaradim and all of the writings of Sfaradim is not to stand for Baruch Hu nor to bow at Baruch Hu. We don't, we don't bow at that place. But the minhag of the Kahal is to do that. And I'm convinced that it's from the time of Ham Gaster because in the Sidurim beforehand, there's no mention of standing at Baruch Hu. And I know that. I checked with Rabbi Levi, my, also my predecessor, Rabbi Abraham Levi, May he live and be well. Uh, we looked at the earlier Sidurim, and in the earlier Sidurim, it's not mentioned at all that a person should stand for, for Baruch Hu or bow at Baruch Hu. Okay, so that's just an introduction. That's, that's, the, uh, that's the first thing. The second thing that we're going to look at is another minhag, very strange minhag. And the reason I want to look at this is because I want you to see what he usually does. Hacham Gagin, 99% of the time, will do whatever he can to defend the minhag of the community, right? So if there is a minhag that we do in London that he's not sure about, he doesn't necessarily recognize it as being something, he might question it, but he will also do anything that he can to defend it. And it's not just the minhagim of London in general, he will do what he can to defend minhagim unless he genuinely feels that they're just off. And that's an important thing because he believed that he clearly had a great love for Minhagim. Otherwise, he wouldn't have written the book. You know, I mean, he wanted very much to have a compendium of Minhagim and sources for Minhagim because he believed that these were very, very important parts of community uh, of Judaism of, and, of, and of our lives because it is what frames and scaffolds our whole commitment to Torah and Mitzvot. And it's the nature of our, nature of our lives, how we do the things, not just what it is that we do. And he believed that minhagim should be upheld because when you start to mess around with minhagim, you start to mess around with the infrastructure of the people. And that always ends in, in problem. And Rabbi, my colleague, Rabbi Elia, Rabbi Israel Elia told me that when Hacham Ovadiah first visited, Hacham Ovadiah Yosef Zatzal, first visited London, uh, they actually sat with him and asked him to review the minhagim of the community and asked him which things he thought they should change. And Hacham Ovadia said, who, who am I to change the minhagim of the community? He said, you had great hachamim in London. And whatever is established is established. That's the minhagim that you have. And so he didn't want to touch anything. There's only one minhag that he did suggest should be changed. And they changed it as a result of him, which I will say with the greatest of respect, I'm, I, uh, it's unfortunate that even that they changed. I don't think that they should have. And we're going to do that next time. We'll look at that next time, which minhag that was. Not this one. But this one is an interesting minhag. And that is a minhag belandin, belel tu adar. Right? So this is motza'e purim. 
So Purim is Yudalit outside of walled cities, right? So Minhag belanded belil tu adar in in Tidvav adar. So he says the Minhag is on the night basically of Shushan Purim. So Motzei Purim, the night of Shushan Purim in Arvit, Lomar Chelik Mehalel is to open Arvit with Halel, but not a full Halel, a, a bit of Halel before Arvit. And the Shliach Sibur begins Right? So the, the, the Hazan starts saying and our tune for that, which they no doubt would have used for that portion of Tefillah. We have many tunes for the Halel here, but for something like that on, a, on, a, on an evening uh, Arbit, they would open and everybody answers, and they read that all the way to the end of the, uh, to the Halil. So he's saying the minhag of the Kahal was to open Arvit Motzei Purim, beginning Shushan Purim, with this portion of the Halil. And he says, this minhag sorer rak the only place they do this is in the Shara Shamayim congregation that's in the city. And the congregation that is in the city is what we know today as Bevis Marks, right? So it's in the city of London. But not in our other synagogues. So not in our synagogue in Maidavale, as you'll see, and not in our Manchester synagogues. He was, by the way, rabbi in Manchester before he became the head of the Kyle here. Um, it's the only synagogue that they do it. So only Bevis Marks does this. Nobody else, none of our, none of our other synagogues do it. Um, and, and also they don't do it in Amsterdam. So he mentions this, this minhag. Here's the, the footnote on the minhag. So he says, minhag zeh, I'm gonna open, I'm gonna make this a bit bigger. He says, minhag zeh muzar He says, I'll be honest, I saw this, this minhag was really strange in my eyes. It was weird. And I didn't see one of the Rishonim who mentioned this. Now, I should say, I, I mean, you probably gather, but Acham Shem Tov was a tremendous Talmud Hacham. I mean, he was huge. And he was extremely well-read and had tremendous petiut, very, very large, wide breadth of knowledge. And he had, a, he had a huge library at his disposal. And so he says, I've looked through all the Rishonim. I haven't seen one of them mention this. He says, even stranger, because they're in London, in this wonderful congregation of London, in the community of London, there are two major, beautiful, uh, you know, but uh, uh, synagogues that they have. Ha'ehad, one is Omed b'Mizraha Shilayir. It's in the east of London. And that was built in 1701. It's the first synagogue built in London. And they called it Shara Shamayim. So again, that's Bevis Marx. He's referring to Bevis Marx. It's in that synagogue that they have this custom to say the Halel on, on Motzei Purim before Shushan Purim. Habeta Knesset Ashniya, but the second synagogue, Shinivna b'Ma'arava Shilir, that was built in the west of London, made a veil, Nivna b'Shnat 1896. It was built in 1896. They don't do this at all in Arbit on that night. They don't say any Halel, right? So that's over here in Lauderdale Road. So he says that stranger because it's not a prevalent minhag of the community, it is a local minhag to the synagogue. And yet he publishes it here that this is what they do. He says, look, I've looked in all of my books. Um, I saw in a book called Shomer Emet. I saw something similar that in France, they have a Purim. Now, this, this is something also important to know. In various congregations in the world, communities in the world, if they had um, what they considered 
to be miracles happen for them, in which specifically they were they were headed towards certain doom and were saved from that expected doom, they would consider it Purim. They would not Purim, capital P Purim, they would consider it a lowercase Purim. And so Egypt had this, they call it Purim Mitzrayim, and they still, the Egyptian Jews, they have, you know, they don't say Tahanunim that day. There are certain things that they, at certain times where they celebrate Purim. So not, when I say Purim again, like a reminiscent, they, it's similar to. So in France, they have a Purim Miuchad. They have this day that they call Purim, you know, it's lowercase again, Purim, on the 23rd and the 29th of Tevet. Something happened to them where they got saved from a certain danger. And after Tefilat Shemona and on those days, after the Amidah, they say, Mina Metzar Karatiyah, right, which is part of the Halel, and then Halel Agadol. Halel Agadol is Hodul Hashem Kitov Kilam Hazdol, Yom Amnayser Kilam Hazdol, so all the whole long Kilam Hazdol that we say on the, in the morning on Shabbat and the Mizmur. Betzien Sham Lachachmat Shalomo. And in that book, Shomer Emet, it quoted the Chokhmat Shlomo that said, En hashash bamirato, that there's no problem with saying it. Why? He says, we see in the city, I don't know which city this is. Maybe somebody knows the city. I don't know what he's referring to, but that's my ignorance. They do the same thing. So there is this thing where they have these Purims, these minor Purims, and where they have these, you know, thanks for being saved from danger and problem. And so he's bringing here a, a similar behavior to this. Then he brings the following. He says, uh, But look what he's, at first, before we go on, look what he's doing. He's going out of his way to give credence to what Bevis Marx was doing. He could have very easily ended his whole thing with the top line. It's a weird thing. I don't know what they're doing. And it doesn't do that. He wants to give some weight to the fact that the things that they do at Bevis Marks are not just fly-by-night things. Yeah? So look what he's doing. So first he went, he had to go find the Sefer Shomer Emet, which is an obscure Sefer, just to find, you know, something that, that was similar, reminiscent to what was to do. Now he, he writes the following. He says, In the Petchei Teshuba, Kata B'Shem HaBerkei Yosef. The Berkei Yosef was written by the Hida. Shekata B'Shem HaMeiri. Right, the Hida wrote in the name of the Meiri Rishon. Based on the fact that it's mentioned in Masechet Megillah that the reading of the Megillah on Purim is its Halel, because you have to realize it's strange, uh, ostensibly, that we don't say Halel on Purim. Right? We say Halel on Hanukkah, we say Halel on the other Moadim, we don't say Halel, we say Halel on Rosh Chodesh, we don't say Halel on Purim. So that's a question of the Gemara. And one of the answers in the Gemara is that the reading of the Megillah is the Halel. Right? To just read the, the story of the Megillah itself, it's the Halel. And based on that, that we see the Megillah being the Halel for Purim, the Me'iri writes that if a person finds oneself in a situation in which they have no Megillah, what do they do? They read the Halil. Right? In other words, on Purim, if they find themselves in a situation where they have no Megillah, they can't read the Megillah, they have no access to a Megillah, Yomar Halil. They should read the Halil. And as a matter of fact, Hacham Ovadiyah posek this, Lahalacha. Hacham Ovadiyah holds that in a situation where a person has no Megillah and they don't have access to a Megillah, they should read a full Halil. The Berke Yosef said that he, his opinion was, First he said, the, 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 the Berke Yosef, there's another opinion in the Gemara, right? And he's not so sure that, that he agrees with the Meiri. Why? Because the other opinion in the Gemara is, the reason we don't say Halil on Purim is because we're still slaves of Ahasuerosh. Not you and me, but the Chachamim of the Talmud. Because there was never a full exodus from the Persian Empire. And even though Hajjarosh was taken down, the Persian, the Persian regime was still in control. And there were many that didn't leave it, and they stayed. And so because of that, we don't say Halil. 
right? Which is interesting because if that's true, then one has to question whether we say halil in modern times on various other situations. But nonetheless, in Mahzik Beracha, which is also written by the Hida, Hevisham Devre Bahag Verambam. He brought the Baal Halachot Gedolot and Harambam that they said that the Tam de Kriyata Zoilula, that the reason that they wrote, Harambam and the Baal Halachot Gedolot wrote, that the reason we don't say Halel on Purim is not the reason because we're still slaves of Hashirosh, but rather indeed because the reading of the Megillah is Halel. And therefore, Halel has connection to the Megillah. He wants to establish that. As the Meiri himself put out before. And therefore, we find that the, re the reasoning of Rav Nachman, who's the one who says that Halil is the reading of the Megillah, was found with that accepted. It comes then that the halacha should be that a person who doesn't have a Megillah on Purim should read the Halil without Brachot because it's like he's reading in uh, Tehilim. And we find from that that it's okay to read Tehilim as long as you're not saying the Brachot of the Halil. And Ume'ata, therefore, if Shalomar, we can very well say, who have the custom to say some, some psukim of the Halil before Arvit of Shushan Purim, why do they do it? And here he's giving his reasoning why he thinks they do it. He has no idea why they do it, but he's giving his reasoning why they do it. He's saying, in Eretz Israel, Shushan Purim is Purim. And they read the Megillah on that night. Right? So in other words, in Eretz Israel at this time, they're reading Megillah. And so what did the London community do? The London community wanted to have connection to their brothers and sisters in Eretz Israel. And so, because they couldn't read the Megillah, it's not, you know, it's not the halacha, it's not the mitzvah of the hachamim. In, in order to have connection to them, they found it appropriate that in their place, on Shushan Purim, they should read some Pesukim of the Halel because the Megillah is the Halel on Purim. So since they're not reading it, they read the Halel instead. Why? And this is beautiful. To show actively that they're taking part and connecting. They have a, a rope, a Hevel, right? They're connecting the line to their brothers and sisters in Eretz Israel. How beautiful. Right? Quite Zionistic, actually, as well. Yeah, we have no idea why we're doing it, but it's a very nice way to uh, to look at it. So you might ask, do they still do this in Bevis Marks? The answer is, I don't know if <laughs> they still do this in Bevis Marks because I'm never there at this time. But I'll tell you what I will do. I'm going to send a voice note to Rabbi Shalomars as we speak. And if he gets back to me in time, then I'll tell you before the end of the shiur. I just didn't have a chance to speak with him before. So we'll do that now. Uh, Rav Shalom, how are you? I'm in the middle of Shi'ur uh, for the Safari Habura, and we're reading a Teshuvah from uh, Rav Gagin that the Minhag of Bevis marks on Lil Shushan Purim, Mos'e Purim, is to read some Sukim of the Tehilim to open Arvit. Does Bevis Marks still do that? Um, if you could get to me as soon as possible, that'd be wonderful because I'm in the middle of the Shi'ur, so before 9.30, otherwise uh, we'll, we'll text the, uh, the chat and let them know the answer. Okay, so that's that, right? Now we're going to look at one other, we're going to look at one other thing that gives you more of an insight into how Hacham Gagin thought and the way that he approached uh, the Kehilot, right, of this, of this Kaha and others and how much he value he put on, on behavior. Okay, so this is a Pesach Minhag, okay? A Pesach Minhag. The Minhag is as follows. Right, that's all you're always worried when you see that. He says the minhag in Israel, in Syria, in Togarma, the eastern community, in the eastern countries, in Egypt, and in Germany, in Ashkenaz. Yeah, that the person who's reading the Haggadah, metif mikos hayain shalosh tipot dam 
that when the person reading the Haggadah gets to the line, Dam, Ish, Timurot Hashan, he takes his, his finger and he drips from the uh, glass of wine, three drops of wine, when he says those words. And then as well, Ken, when he reads the 10 makot, each makah, dip, drop, dip, drop, dam, sfardeya, kinim. And also, when he does the abbreviations, three, three times. Sachakol, 16 tipot. That's how many tipot they do. Hashamash, Right, the attendant has a bowl full, full of water. And in his other hand, he has a pitcher. Right, so he sits, he holds the bowl, and as the, he drips wine into the bowl, he pours water over it. Drips wine, pours water over it. He's describing the minhat. They do the whole time. At the end, they have to wash it out, this, this cup of the Baalabayit. And then they continue the Seder. But the Sfaradim in London and Amsterdam, they have no idea what this is. They've never seen this. They don't do this, right? So he's saying very clearly that this Minhag that we all know, Right, everybody here, I'm sure, knows this minhag. You either drip wine or you dip wine or whatever. But at the point of the makot, you pour wine. Yeah, he says London and Amsterdam don't know what this is. They don't do any of this. This is not their minhag. And and he here's the footnote. So he says He goes all of the hachamim of the sfaradim of the sfaradim, the early hachamim of the sfaradim lo alal they never spoke of it. This was never mentioned by any of our hachamim. The hazayazo, hazaya means this strange, odd behavior. That's what hazaya is. It's cra- literally, it's a craziness. Yeah. So here he's getting a little bit uh, touchy. Yeah. He says, look, this craziness, it came from the hachamim of Ashkenaz, not us. Right when the hachamim of Sfarad in the days of the Ari saw that the Ari agreed to it, right? He endorsed this minhag. Then the mekubalim, not all the Sfaradim, the mekubalim among the Sfaradim established it. They did it. They mimicked it. Little by little, Little by little, the custom spread. Right? The Amaritz, right? Then the regular Amaritz, they also did it. The rest of the people. Who know nothing. Literally, it means they don't know from their right or left. They don't know what they're doing. So they just, they see, they do. They saw, they copied. That was it. You can see he likes this minhag very much, right? So he continues and he says, he goes, and the interesting thing is that there's differences in how the Ashkenazim do it and how the Sfaradim ended up doing it. The Minhag Sfarad is that we pour from the cup the wine. And that's how my family does. My family pours from the cup. Drip tipa tipa. The Ashkenazim, they use their finger. Whereas the Sfaradim, they pour directly from the cup. The Megid Abraham says, B'Shem Arav Mateh Moshe, the Tam Dezorkin Be'etzbah, Al-Shem Etzbah Eluhimhi. The reason the Ashkenazim do it with their finger is because there's a pasuk that says that during the Makot, the Egyptians said, Etzbah Eluhimhi, it's the finger of God that is doing this to us. So we take our fingers and drop the Makot that way. But not necessarily the the way that the most of people do it with their pinky, right? It's by Elohimi, we're assuming that the finger of God is, you know, the finger of God, not that. And yet the way that we do it, the way that the Minhag of Ashkenazim do is use their pinky finger. But then he says, but in the Al-Qut, Katav b'shem perkeder b'rezer, how did Akadosh Baruch Hu smite Egypt with his pinky finger? Not his 
pointer finger. And therefore, that's why they do it with the pinky, on based on that midrash. Now, he goes, I want to tell you, I want to tell the reader, I was asked a question by Rav Yaakov Klotzkin, who is the son of the Gaon Milublin. That I should tell him my opinion as to the nature of this strange minhag. What's its purpose? What's its reason? Why they do it? And he says in parentheses and brackets, says, it's a shame, really. Manchester. I was in the Gola, I was exiled to the city Manchester during the war. And so all my whole my whole library is not with me when he asked me, and I couldn't answer properly. And so it was unfortunate. I left all my books in the yeshiva in Ramsgate. And so I didn't have them in Manchester. So I can't really write elaborately exactly what it is that I wrote him because the letter that I wrote him that I copied is in my library in Ramsgate and I'm stuck in Manchester. So <laughs> that's his disclaimer first. But he says, look, Zuhurani, he goes, look, I remember that basically this is the gist of what I answered him. <laughs> he says, look, he goes, look, if you look at the Rishonim, like Karambam and the Sefer Manhig and the Kolbo that speak a lot about Minhagim, not a mention of this Minhag that we do. It is mentioned in the Maharil, in the name of the Rokeach. He goes, look, we could say a reason for it. That look, this, this is where you really see the thinking of Hakam Gagim. He goes, look, Jews are superstitious. It's just the nature of Jews. It's a Jewish thing that we just like beliefs, odd beliefs. We, we believe in all kinds of things. We have superstitions. He goes, look, take, for example, the Ainara, yeah, the evil eye. Like there's not a Jew that doesn't buy into this nonsense, right? This Ainara thing. We fraud about in Morocco, especially in Morocco. They're like uber Ain Hara uh, people. They hate Ain Hara. He's Moroccan, Hakam Gagim. His family's Moroccan. They do all kinds of things against Ain Hara. Just so that they shouldn't have Ain Hara. So they paint everything turquoise. They put eyes like all sorts all over the place, you know, red strings. Who knows what other kind of things they do? All kinds of things. Whatever they do, no Ain Hara. It's hilarious. I mean, some people are really, I had a Moroccan kid in my yeshiva who uh, at breakfast, if he like brought anything extra to breakfast that the, you know, we were having at breakfast that was like offered by the yeshiva, he would literally sit there at, at, uh, at breakfast and go like this to everybody like on his head. And it was like very subtle, but he would go like this. So he's giving hamsa to the whole room. You know, that nobody should look at him because he had a little bit extra breakfast, you know, and be, people be, be jealous of him. But yeah, I mean, these kinds of things all over the place. The Syrians, tons of Ainara problems they have. Tons of Ainara problems they have. And I can't tell you how many, uh, oh my gosh, what they do. You know, they have, uh, they have, uh, they'll like tie dollar bills to their new car, you know, for good luck. So that nobody, uh, you know, so that, there's no bad eye, you know, that anybody anybody has with it. There's, they won't say five, or they will include a five in things. So, for example, if you ask many many Syrians how many children do you have, and they have five children, they will not say I have five children. But the reason they won't say I have five children is because they don't want to insult the person that's asking them as though they're thwarting the ayn hara by the person asking them the question. You understand? Because if I say five, then I'm thwarting the Ainara because there's a Hamsa against the Ainara. And so they won't say five. They'll say, I have Fedel Adu, which means in the eye of the enemy. That's how many kids I have <laughs> in, the, in the eye of the enemy. Or, uh, you know, they will not, if they announce times for, for Shabbat or for prayers or whatever, and, and the time is 9.55 or 3.55, they will not say 3.55. They'll say 354 
So that is not to make people uncomfortable that they're giving them ayin ara. But in their ketubot, right, the amount that's used, the menag of the Syrian community in the ketubah is to write $5,555. And that's against the ayin ara. So they do all kinds of things. It's all kinds. So what he's saying is true, right? They're, they're, they're nuts, you know, when it comes to the ayin ara, which is all nonsense. So too, they'll say, for example, if you need to tell someone that an individual is ill or sick, uh, they will always, before saying this, that so-and-so is sick, they'll say, lo aleha, or lo alechem. Yeah, not, not on you, or not on us, but so-and-so is sick. Yeah, because Hav Shalom, mentioning that somebody is sick, is going to make everybody sick. So, and it's going to create Ainara. So you have to do those kinds of things. And in the old country, and in the old customs, you don't do these things, it's like the worst possible insult in the world. The worst possible insult in the world. So what he's talking about is, is important because he's saying that London and Amsterdam have none of this. They don't, they don't know from any of this stuff. They don't deal in Ayn Hara kind of things. But the Eastern uh, communities definitely did. They had a ton of, of worries about this. And he says, so, you know, this is like Jewish, it's Jewish uh, nature to be worried about these things. So it's not only that with regards to sickness, he says, if you need to say so-and-so died, right? Uh, you have to say, mikodem, shabak, or bar minan. You know, if you say somebody died, bar minan, bar minan. Or you say somebody died, hashalom, hashalom. Yeah, you have to add that in because hashalom, you don't want anybody to feel bad that you're saying, oh, you mean I should die? You have to say those things. Based on that whole problem, I gave a reasoning in my books, Keter Shem Tov, about Berkat Lebana about the blessing we say over the moon. What? That after we say the Berkat Lebana, the Menag is to say Shalom Aleichem to people. Why do we say Shalom Aleichem to people? He says, Shalom Berkat Because we're afraid of death and damage. And in Berkat Lebana, we say, We say they should be stricken with fear, right? But that's talking about our enemies. But it's just a pasuk we say alone. Tipol alehem emata bafahad. Who? You're just saying a pasuk of all kinds of bad things. Who does that fall on? After that, we say shalom alechem. Why? To say, Look, when I said that just before, I didn't mean it on you or anybody here, right? So we just want to tell you, shalom alechem. So you shouldn't be worried, okay? And so therefore, based on the same similar reasoning here you're sitting at the table and you're saying makot at the table right that will make people very uncomfortable so you have to do something to counteract the makot so that's what they do they pour the wine and then they cover it with water and then they throw it out right not on us, it's on someone else. We're pouring these things out. We're, we're, we're expelling these things. And that's why we do it. And therefore, the Minhag is after we finish, we wash the cup out really well. To take away all the makot out of the cup, right? Because you don't want any makot in the cup. And then the attendant takes whatever wine was poured into the bowl and throws it out into the, you know, into the, to the outside or whatever. In my family, in many, many Syrian families, they flush it down the toilet. And not only that, whoever took the bowl inside had to be escorted with someone. Yeah. And nuts, nuts. And don't look. It used to be in my house also. Don't look. When you're pouring the wine, don't look at the wine. It's makot. You don't want to look at the makot. And I stopped all of that in my family. I, I stopped all of it in my family. I do the pouring, but I make everybody look. And I don't send anybody to the bathroom. And I don't let anybody, I, I let them do whatever it is alone. And the reason for that is this. This is very important. There are certain times where superstitions, people think they're innocent. They're not innocent. That particular superstition of Pesach night is horrible. And the reason why it's horrible is because it flies in the face of what Pesach is. Pesach, we call Pesach Lel Shimurim. It is a night of protection. So much so 
that according to the Pshat, that if Pesach night falls out on Shabbat, we do not say Berachah Me'en Sheva on the Tefillah. What is a Berachah Me'en Sheva? The Berachah Me'en Sheva is a, is a summary of the Amidah that we say on Friday night. Why do we say the Berachah Me'en Sheva on Friday nights? The reason we say it is because in the older days, the Batei Knesset were outside of the Yishuv and people would come late to Shuv. They'd come late to synagogue. And in order to pad the time so that the people who came late to synagogue wouldn't leave alone because everybody would leave before them because they were catching up with their tefillot, they instituted the Berachame and Sheva. The Hazal, the Gemara. So they padded the prayer so that the latecomers would have time to finish their tefillah so everybody would leave synagogue together so that the latecomers wouldn't leave by themselves and be in danger. Here, on Pesach night, no Berachame and Sheva. Why? They're going to leave by themselves. Yeah, but it's a little shimurim. But Pesach is a night of protection. You don't have to worry. So if a guy doesn't have to worry leaving when it's dark outside, late at night by himself coming home, I should worry that the wine in my bowl is going to destroy the whole family? Lel shimurim hu. It's an aberration of Pesach. It's horrible. And that comes from people. That's why the hacham here is saying, Lo yadam minam They don't know what they're doing. It's, it's all hazayah, and that's a problem. So specifically with Pesach, I stopped that in my family. And I spoke very strongly against it in my shiurim when I was in New York, which of course didn't make me uh, Mr. Popularity. But nonetheless, that's the truth. It's a wrong thing to do. So he's saying our, the Sfaradim never did it. And in London and Amsterdam, they never had these things. They don't know from these things. They're not inclined to superstition. And so therefore they didn't involve it. And then the guy would have to pour it out like surutame, you know, go out, you impure thing. And he said, I also heard that in general, if a person tells another person something bad or they have bad news to tell them, the person hearing the bad news spits on the floor as if to say, as if we, to, to deflect it so that it shouldn't have effect on us. If Shalomar, we could say another reason this is done. When you do drop after drop of the wine, from the wine in the in the cup, the wine gets lower. And therefore, that's what we want to show happened to Egypt, that Egypt was diminished as a result of the Makot, which is a nice thing that doesn't include the superstitions. But as I said, all the behaviors around this kind of thing definitely indicates that there was some superstition around it even though that might not have been the origins of it, it nonetheless became the practice of the Hamon Am of it. And that's, uh, that's something also that, that, that we need to be careful about because when a hacham does something, a hacham could do something because he finds meaning or value in it. But a hacham also has to be careful as to how the, how the Am see it and how they behave with it because they end up taking it on a whole nother, on a whole nother level. All right, I am going to stop here because it's 9.30, and that's basically the crux of what it was that I wanted to show you and how it is that he dealt with it. Um, and there is a little taste of Hacham Shem Tov for you and how it is that he deals with things and his uh, personality and mindset. Next time, like I said, we'll, we'll look at another minhag that he has issue with with regards to the S&P itself and, and others that kind of try to stop the S&P and so on. So we'll get into that. Thank you very much, Rav. Rav, do you want to quickly give an uh, um, intro to what's happening next week? Your uh, Harold Sutton? No, next week. You're the week after the week next. Oh, um, we're do we're talking about Rabbi Sutton's class. Yes. So, uh, my dear friend and and a a mentor and and a tremendous tremendous. Uh, he's just a great friend and, and dear friend of mine, Rabbi Harold Sutton, in New York. Um, he's the Rosh Kolel now of the Kolel that I studied at and got my semicha from. Um, one of the, I can say he he is one of the few hachamim in my life that I I just trust implicitly to speak anything with him about. And that's not a disparaging thing on other hachamim. I'm saying in terms of my relationship with him, my connection with him. And he's just, I have huge kavod, huge kavod for him. He is going to be giving a one lecture on the on the differences between the approach of the Sfaradim to studying Gemara and Talmud and the approach of the Ashkenazim to studying Gemara and Talmud. So it's not to be missed. Um, 
and I hope that you know people will enjoy it. So that's that. Thank you, everybody. Thank you all for making it the right. Thank you so much. Uh, someone just joined the waiting room, so I think they got the hour wrong, but uh, the time is wrong. But uh, uh, thank you all for being here. Hope to see you all next week. And uh, just looking quickly. Have a wonderful the, evening. I'm looking quickly at the chat. Yes. See if there's any questions. We didn't censor him. Does anyone have any questions, Rob? Uh, or Rob, you have to go. I can answer. So, you got anyone got any questions? Yeah, um, yes. Simon, you say, doesn't Hazaya mean throwing out the drops? No, but it's a wonderful connection to the word because that is the Lashon for Hazaya. But if you look at it in context, he's not talking about this dripping. He's using probably a play of terms. So he's, he's definitely playing on the words. Yeah, I think he, yeah, double entendre. Um, is there an English translation of Shem Tov? Unfortunately not. But, but I'm going to be sending my, my recordings out, which I translate the, you know, whatever it is that I'm reading, and maybe that could be used if we want to have it translated in the future, but unfortunately, no. I see Avi has some of it translated in this link. It was Rabbi Raif Mel Melado. Um, he translated some of it. Okay. Well, only a few chapters. Jamal's got a question. Uh, yeah, quick question. Um, you mentioned um, you used to teach the halakha of the Keter Shem Tov. Um, and I want to say you also mentioned um, recordings of some of the shirim, and you sent out that Dropbox recently of the Rambam's teachings, which was excellent, by the way. So thank you for sending that. I was just curious if you had some of those recordings of the halakha. I have all, I have, yeah, I have the whole thing. So what I can do is um, I can give the link for the Dropbox enough. I'll post it in the group tonight. On the of the Keter Shem Tov. Thank you, Rob. Where do you live, Tanel? In Saint Petersburg, Florida. In Saint Petersburg. Your last name Jamal. Uh, that's my first name. That's your first name, Jamal. Yeah. Cool. Arab. Thanks yeah. for uh, thanks for coming, tuning in. Yeah. Thank you. And I, I do want it to be a tradition now where people in the chat put the city they're in. We, we did it for a few, a few times, but I think I'm going to ask that at the beginning of the Chavarak uh, sessions now on. Oh, see Texas. how global it is. Yeah. It's, it's, I think Asaf had a question. Yeah. Um, yes. Um, when Rav Shemtov Gagin writes uh, Eastern or Western or where does Morocco and Tunisia um, fall in that? that? He considers that the Eastern communities. Because when he's talking about Western communities, he's talking about London and Amsterdam. That's it. He's not right. anything else. Anything Arabic speaking is is considered to him the east. Yeah. So is he considering the entire Maghreb when he's talking about Mitzrayim? Essentially, 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 there will be times in the book where he delineates because there'll be differences of minhag. So he will say Morocco does this, or you know, or Tunis does this, and so on. But generally, when he throws them all into the to the bucket, he's assuming that their minhagim are all the same. Okay. Thank you. <clears throat> I have a question, sorry. Yes. Um, in, I think... Who's talking? The, it's Gary. Oh, Gary, okay. Um, in one of the volumes, there's a, there's a kind of introduction, and he goes through the differences between um, some of the halachot of, of the Ramah and Maran Shulchan Aruch. Mm -hmm. And he's quite cursed in his language, where he feels that, that the Ramah has completely strayed from what Maran wrote. And yeah. One of the examples I can remember is carrying money on Shabbat if you were worried that it was going to be stolen, yeah. uh, which the Ramah permits, but uh, obviously Maran Shulchan Aruch probably doesn't. Um, do you know if there was any comeback of that? Because I was just wondering if he got into trouble for writing that, if there was I any kind of... I have to say, I will say that I'm not an expert in Hacham Gagin, but I really, I think that he was quite lucky that in the time that he lived and in the situation that he lived, I mean, war was going on. So I don't think that people had time to get into that, right. you know, with him. Uh, and there wasn't focus. And also it wasn't, it wasn't, the networks were not as connected as they are today. And then, you know, and so he, yeah. he was lucky. You know, he was. I thought maybe Rob Dessler might have had taken task with it. Yeah, but, nah, yeah. I don't, and I don't think that Rob Dessler was that would have, was that kind of person, you know? I mean, I don't know of Rob Dessler doing those kinds of things, but nonetheless, but they got him, at, you know, they got him posthumously. Right. How terrible. I mean, I'm telling you, I see that. It just makes my blood boil every time I see it. It's in the book. It's terrible. Right. It kind of, that just that line kind of represents the self-righteousness. One of the, 
I know one of the reasons why this Khabura exists, trying to, <laughs> you know, overcome comments like that at the, at the early pages of our Hachamim, uh, Hachamim's books. Anybody else's questions? Um, is it Robert. possible to, can you hear me? Is it possible to elaborate on, um, on, on them having a go him posthumously? I just read it. I read Robert it. wasn't here. Robert wasn't here at the right at the beginning. So if you uh, want to... If you listen to the recording, I read it out. and I. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Good. Anybody else? I think that's it. All right, everyone. Thank you for, for joining and sharing. Thank you very much. Thank you very, thank you very much. much Great to see you all. Thank you. Good night. Thank you. Thank you.